Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So we believe in God within us. Do you hear that? We believe in God within us. The next one. The Holy Spirit of Pentecostal fire. Life-giving breath of the church. Spirit of healing and forgiveness. Source of resurrection and of eternal life. Amen. Those are powerful words. And we say that we believe them. We pray them. There's something of that kind of belief echoing in Philippians today when we hear Paul's words of reckless abandon to God. There's something about God that he had encountered. There was something of God that had been stirred deeply in him, and God had become to him his great treasure. If you stacked on this side everything that would seem to mean something in his life, he counted all those things as trash compared to the great treasure of knowing God. And for those of us who've been around the church and we've read the scriptures, I think those kinds of words can just fall so flat. And I'm not here to shame in any way. They fall flat with me all the time. But it is a wonder, isn't it? Last week we heard the psalmist give us this prayer To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. God, I don't have much, but I have myself. And I lift it to you. God, I have lots of uncertainties and many fears and many anxieties, but I lift myself to you. You might remember back in May, we talked a bit as a church of this sense that Perhaps we were in one of those stages where Christians and God's people across history have often find themselves as nothing unique, but this moment where uh, a light dawning, we need to pay attention to God in a new kind of way. It's really what the message of all the prophets is about. The apostles spoke about it, much of the epistles. Return to God. Return to your love for God. And so in June, we took the month aside and we did the most basic and simple thing. We we prayed. We turned our attention to God. We did that on Monday evenings. Some some of us were able together. We used our prayers of the people in a different kind of way to say as a church, we just sense that we need to pay attention to God. Well, July and August came along, and um, everything was ripped apart. 
and I wondered during all of that if, um, in this strange way that even amid all these things we're needing to pay attention to, if it might be possible that we would somehow miss God in the middle of all that, miss God in our suffering, miss God in our anger. And so I had planned this morning to stand up and I was sensing that perhaps it was a time that we could breathe a little bit, not that any of that is over. We are on a, a long, a long work that we're doing, but that it would be time we could come back and we could, I could just say as your pastor, I think we're still in this place where we really need God. And then this morning news comes that more of these fellas showed up and And yet I sense a, a great freedom this morning to say what I thought I was supposed to say, which is we need God. Paul had had something happen in him that had released a furious love for God. I've also been aware of the last uh, six weeks particularly of a number of us in our community who have totally alongside or aside from all of the we as a, as a wider community have experienced this summer that you in personal ways in your own life have experienced real pain and tragedy. There has been some real, real sorrow in this room. And I want to tell you that you really need God in the middle of that sorrow. We need the God who comes to us in power and holiness. We need the God who booms from Sinai. It's the God who rules over the world. We also need the God who comes to us in such tenderness and vulnerability. The God who comes to us in the form of Jesus. The God who is helpless and nurtured in Mary's womb. The womb of this brave, fateful woman who had the astounding courage to simply say yes to God to abandon herself to God. We need to sit at Mary's feet. We need to learn from her example. We hear this morning of another who followed Mary's example. In Philippians 3, Paul's resists this suffocating notion that there might be anything more precious, precious to us, anything more necessary to us than a deep, transformative encounter with the Jesus who rose from the dead. It's really tempting to believe that saying we need God, that we need Jesus, is of course a proposition that any self-respecting Christian would utter. But to betray that in the loyalties of our heart. And really, I don't think there's anything um, that can woo us away from these other loyalties other than an encounter with Jesus. There's no, uh, 
crafty sermon I could offer. There's no heart-wrenching story that I could twist into your mind that would sort of guilt you into promising once again to make God first, you know. It's one of these mysteries where grace has to come to us and the Spirit makes life open to us and we're in a place and a posture where we're willing to hear and receive and say yes. So Paul says if there's anyone who thinks that what we really need most in our life is what we can make of our life, if it really is our intellectual power, if it really is our upbringing, if it really is what we can make of ourselves, if it really is our proper posture in life, if it really is all the things that we rack up as our accomplishments, then he's really got it done. He was in the right group. He was uh, literally an eighth-day person. And if you're a Jew, that meant that you had been circumcised when exactly when you were supposed to be on the eighth day. Like you were the best of the best. Like you, you were born in the right place at the right time. You were really in. He was a true Israelite. He was a Benjamite. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like there's Hebrews and then there's Hebrews of Hebrews. And he was the Hebrew of the Hebrew. We don't really know for sure what exactly that means. Um, some people think it means that he was able to read the Torah in the original Hebrew language, which was a very scholarly thing to do. He was the right kind of person. He was on the right side doing the right things. He was a Pharisee. He was truly righteous. He was really spiritual. He knew the scriptures. It's really interesting. I was thinking about this week how, you know, uh, there was a time in the church culture I was in where this would land really squarely, like, oh, yeah, we really know the scriptures, and wow, we need to be chastened by our pride about that. But it's really interesting. I think in some ways in our circles, like, the Pharisees are the ones who aren't the Pharisees, right? <laughs> like, we're Pharisees because we are the ones who aren't like those kinds of Christians who, I mean, they, they really quote Bible verses about everything. They're carried away. We're not like that. Isn't it interesting how our self-righteousness just, we can't escape it. He was zealous. Interesting, isn't it? To be writing an epistle to the church and say my zeal was in persecuting the church because as a Jew, you were trying to be faithful to what you thought was the revelation and the church was an aberration. According to righteousness required by the law, blameless. That word righteousness we talked about can also be translated justice. When it came to matters of justice, I did what was right. I was on the right side. But none of this, Paul realized, was what he most deeply needed. None of it was Paul's great longing. None of it was his great desperation. I consider everything loss, Paul says, compared to that surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom's sake I have lost all things. God had so wrecked Paul's heart that he wanted to surrender everything. 
for the great joy and love for God. I want to know Christ, Paul says. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know even the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to become like this Jesus in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear in Paul this great longing? I wonder if we have grown so smart if we have evolved in our spirituality so much, if we get the true meaning of things so well that we don't actually need God anymore. Isn't it interesting that he says in this strange word that I don't want to say too lightly, but he says, I long for, for even know Jesus in his sufferings. Isn't suffering the very thing that often turns us away from God? For some of us, it draws us deeper in, and for some of us, it pushes us further away. Why is there suffering? Perhaps some of us think we want God so long as God is the means to the constantly achieving, upwardly mobile life that we demand. But for Paul, if encountering the fullness of Jesus required encountering Jesus in his sufferings, then Paul wanted even that. Paul wasn't a masochist. It didn't seem like he went out in search of suffering, but he wanted Jesus, and he wanted whatever having in Jesus included. I don't know for sure if I can honestly say, Jesus, I want you if in somehow the scheme of my life, wanting you means suffering. And in that question sits for me the question of my life. Is Jesus a means to something? Or is Jesus the God of my heart and my life? It's important, I think, to say that Paul also got discouraged. I mean, he sounds really on top of it here. He also got discouraged. He had numerous outbursts of faithlessness. He had other kinds of anger that seemed bent in different directions. He at times felt despairing and fateful. But in this moment, Paul could want God so desperately, could abandon himself so recklessly, could trust God with such fierceness because he had encountered and been wooed by a Jesus who is worthy of this kind of love. I think sometimes our struggle is not that, I mean, maybe it's just that our heart is fickle. I think mine is. But sometimes I think it's because the Jesus we're responding to really isn't the Jesus who is the Son of God. We're responding to a Jesus of our own making, a Jesus that's been handed to us, but Paul had encountered the Jesus of Philippians 2. Paul had encountered a Jesus who, for the sake of love, abandoned every vestige of power and laid himself down for the sake of love. He had encountered a Jesus who never knew hunger and became hungry for love. 
he encountered a Jesus who had never been wounded, who was wounded and killed for love. There are these two realities to God, and we absolutely need both of them. And I wonder if somehow we're stuck in the messy, mucky middle, and we actually have neither. The transcendent God who is holy and righteous and completely other, and the one before whom we bow and we take off our feet and we tremble and quake because we stand on holy ground when we are in God's presence. And the God who is in paradoxical ways so near and immediate and so humble, not the God who rules by some kind of force of power that insists on his way, but the God who bends before us and takes off our shoes and washes our stinky feet for the sake of love and says, how can I serve you? This is the God that we can trust with our life. If God is just an angry force, who insists on some kind of flat obedience, then God is not the God who would woo our hearts. But if we are talking about the Jesus who in human form showed us the fullness of God and that God hung on a cross, and that God stood by a woman who was about to be stoned, that God turns to a child who everyone else wanted to push away and said, come near, come close. This Jesus. If our God is a God who wins by force, who conquers, who demands his own way, who's given to explosive fits of rage, who's going to trust that God? Who is going to long for it and to desperately desire and think the greatest treasure is in that God? Whose heart will ever be melted by that God? But if God stands beside us in our shame and says to our accusers, any of you sinless? If the God is the one who says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. If God is the one who insists on being our good shepherd and leading us into life that is true, if our God is the one who says, I will take your pain and I will make you whole. If our God is one who says, I will never abandon you and I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. If this is our God, then perhaps something could break free in us. Maybe we could feel the possibility of letting our self-sufficiency crumble because all of a sudden we wouldn't believe the lie anymore that we're the ones who have to hold our life. Perhaps then we could say, give me Jesus, even if it means suffering, even if it costs me everything that I've thought I needed to be okay. I do sense that where God would like to take us will cost us something. But I really believe that it's the way to joy. I really believe it's the way to be free.
I'm not sure I have the courage to say, Jesus, I want you, even if it costs me everything that I think I need. But I do think that's the question before me. I do believe that's the question before us. And our gentle, loving, humble God will not force a yes. (laughs) But I think a yes is what is required if we're to know the depths of joy and goodness that God would have for us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.